0: Uh, My name is Kathleen Hicks. I direct the International Security Program here at CSIS, and it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, both for our keynote today and for our follow-on panel discussion for our um, most recent report landing together uh, regarding Pacific amphibious developments and their implications for the U.S. fleet. I want to thank in particular Huntington Ingalls Industries for sponsoring the conference today and to helping support our project, um, the Landing Together project. Um, I do want to just remind you, as we do at all CSIS events, about our safety procedures. There's uh, double doors in the back of the room. They exit out to the front of the building, and we can go across the street there um, should a fire alarm or something like that go off. Um, Now, what I really want to do is introduce our keynote speaker this morning, who is Lieutenant General John Whistler. He is currently the commander of U.S. Marine Corps Forces Command and the commanding general of Fleet Marine Forces Atlantic. He has served at virtually every level of the Marine Corps. I will not go through all of that, uh, but it is amazingly impressive. Um, Of note, he has served multiple times for for today's purposes. He served multiple times in the Pacific, of course, um, to include um, in support of operations in the Philippines after Super Typhoon Hanan and an earthquake relief in Nepal in 2013 and 2015, respectively. He has also served in Iraq during the surge. He has served as a senior military assistant to the deputy secretary of defense and for all his sins not only was that one tour in the pentagon he had to return to the pentagon um, to serve in marine corps headquarters as the programming and resources deputy commandant Um, so without further ado please join me in welcoming general whistler
1: Thanks, Kathy. It's uh, great to be with you again. It's even better that we're not in a DMAG yes. and I'm on the other side of the table trying to fight for something for the Marine Corps. Um, I really do look forward to reading this report. I haven't had a chance, obviously, since it's being released. I did get a sneak peek at a little bit of a draft. Um, but today I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to try and add to that body of work. There's some tremendous experts that have gone out and done all the hard research. What I am going to try and do today is provide context, both from my previous job as the commanding general of 3 Marine Expeditionary Force. I served there from July of 2013 to September of 2015 and was one of the many players in the development of amphibious capability throughout the Pacific, uh, specifically focusing on the early development of uh, amphibious capability with the Japanese and as well as with the Australians and uh, New Zealand. Um, and then some initial work uh, in Malaysia. I'm also going to give you a little bit of uh, reference from where I sit today as the commander of Marine Forces Command in that one of my one of my uh, responsibilities for our Commandant is to do naval integration with the Commander of Fleet Forces Command. So I'm fairly engaged with what's going on with the Navy and how it integrates specifically to amphibious operations. So Lots of things matter in the Asia-Pacific. You'd probably ask yourself, why, why would we look at amphibious capability and why is it important? And I would tell you that there's probably two reasons that it's important. Uh, first of all, geography matters, both the physical geography and the fiscal geography, both very important. Forty percent of the world's trade transits the Straits of Malacca, 13 of the 15 megacities in the Asia-Pacific are within 100 kilometers of the coast. In this year alone, the census data indicates that five of the 15 highest-ranked trading partners for the United States are in the Asia-Pacific region. And as has been a trend for at least the last 20 years, and I've actually looked back over 40 years, natural disasters have wreaked havoc every year in the Asia-Pacific. Approximately 70,000 people lose their lives every year in the Asia-Pacific due to natural disasters. The 3rd Marine Expeditionary Brigade, or 3 mef once every 12 to 15 months has responded to a major humanitarian assistance or disaster relief operation in the Asia Pacific, uh, most recently to the uh, major earthquakes in Kumamoto Prefecture in Japan. So it's not something that's going away. History has shown that it will be here for a while, and that makes it important. In addition, controlling the vital littorals and supporting operations and the economies that flow through them requires amphibious capability. And I have to state up front, the importance of this is its capability that's well beyond that, possessed exclusively by the United States of America. The second thing that matters is the threat, the threat in the region, a threat that's defined literally across the range of military operations. And you can simply follow the investments of many of the countries and where they're investing in amphibious operations. There's obviously a real need for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Singapore has purchased what some have called a mini-carrier, dubbed the joint multi-mission ship. Some postulate that it was bought as a result of HADR efforts in the wake of the 2013 Super Typhoon Haiyan, which I was the Joint Task Force Commander for U.S. Forces. A very complex and very challenging operation for not only the U.S. Joint Task Force, but for the international community to be able to respond and to assist. There's a very real need for sea-based limited contingency operations and what I mean by this is Australia's intervention in East Timor I'll talk a little bit more about that later and for those of you who have followed that at all you realize that the Australians didn't have amphibious capability and they're gonna talk about that in an upcoming seminar there's a real need for sea-based counterterrorism Malaysia has already conducted some of that from what we would call alternative platforms in East Sabah. And then obviously a real need for major combat operations, for combined forcible entry operations, and probably the best example of that is our treaty obligations in the defense of the Republic of Korea, South Korea. So what's the proof of the importance across the range of military operations? So how do we know this is more important than just buying stuff? Because people are buying stuff all over the world. Military, uh, we're seeing slight increases uh, across most of the world in investments in defense. Um, So why are amphibious ships important? I think to me the cornerstone of showing why it's important uh, is outlined by who's going to attend the. Marine Forces Pacific-sponsored Pacific Amphibious Leaders Seminar, which will be conducted 10 to 14 (coughs) July uh, at Camp Pendleton, California. Twenty-three countries from the Asia-Pacific will attend that conference. Um, And not only will they be represented by uh, different levels of government, but they will also be represented by both Navy, Marine Corps, Naval Infantry. And Army general officers and flag officers from those representative countries. And to further signify its importance to the United States, the idea of implications for the U.S. fleet, the commander of PAC fleet, the commander of 7th Fleet, the commander of Surface Forces Pacific will also be in attendance. And what that signals is this is not just an amphibious thing, it's a naval thing. And that's, I think, a point to take away. It's a point to show that amphibious is simply part of the greater naval picture in the Asia-Pacific, but one that perhaps needs most attention and is receiving that attention right now. In addition to those luminaries, multiple U.S. ship commanders will be there, and they will not be just from amphibious ships, and I think that speaks volumes about the importance of why we're doing it. I won't go into details about the conference other than to tell you it's not just a standard seminar with speeches and PowerPoint. And if you were waiting for me to change to the next slide, I am not going to do that. Um, So for those of you who need heart resuscitation because a military guy is giving a presentation without PowerPoint, um, you can rest easy. But it's not just that. It's academics. They're going to talk about the fundamentals of how you execute amphibious operations. They're going to do a tabletop exercise against uh, a, uh, you know, a, fake enemy and a fake island, but in the right geography. Um, and that will engage not just staff officers, but general officers and flag officers. And then there will be a significant at-sea demonstration about skin, skin descent, skin-to-skin marrying of uh, amphibious ship-to-shore capability from uh, mobile landing platform and some other alternative platforms to show the viability of those platforms, some of which are being used by the countries in the Asia-Pacific all represents a huge investment in amphibious capability, but it also represents a huge investment of time. Time being, I think, that most critical resource, the resource that people cannot renew. Time by those people in 23 different countries who feel that this is a worthy investment of their time and their travel to get to Camp Pendleton to be a part of that seminar. So given that amphibious development has demonstrated importance, uh, the question I asked myself was how how do we land together? Landing together takes a plan. Einstein was purported to say if I had only one hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and only five minutes finding the solution. Defining the problem, in my mind, is essential to developing the plan. Amphibious development may not be saving the world, but it is certainly important in the Asia-Pacific. Executing any plan takes resources. A vision without resources is a hallucination. And the reason it is a hallucination is because, and this is especially important in our fiscal climate, both in the United States and in other countries, you don't do more with less. You either do less with less or different with less. And I would say one of the highlights of the development of amphibious capability in the Pacific is, it is doing different with less. The Pacific Area or Pacific Amphibious Leaders Seminar is demonstrating an effective way to develop develop different with less in that combined amphibious capability amongst all those nations. Planning starts with defining the problem, but it also starts with identifying facts and assumptions. So what are the facts about amphibious development? First and foremost, I think we need to make sure that we understand amphibious development in one country does not equal that same capability or capacity, even if the platform looks the same in every country engaged in amphibious development. Amphibious development can be all of what I described at the beginning of this, or simply pieces, or even small subsections of those pieces of those capabilities. It's the capability to execute humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. It's the ability to do limited contingency ops in East Timor. At the upcoming Pacific uh, Amphibious Leaders Seminar, the Australians are going to talk about how different their operations would have been in East Timor had they had an amphibious ship. And for those who were stationed in in the Asia Pacific in that period, there was much discussion about how amphibs could and should have contributed to that effort. The counter-terrorism operations in Savah, how low-end amphibious platforms can actually execute a very high-end mission in terms of its criticality. And then obviously the high-end major combat operations, combined forcible entry operations. But what you have to know is that integral to that plan in Korea is the integration of literally commercial ferry capability to execute the movement of combat capability intermediate staging bases, be they afloat or be they uh, structures, such that you can then move the force ashore. So it's not what we in the United States see as amphibious capability. That's not the definition of amphibious capability in many of these countries. It's not what they seek by building amphibious capability. So after defining the problem, What do we mean by amphibious? We must define the resources available. What does it mean? What does the impact of resources mean around the region? As I said before, all amphibious platforms are not created equal. Some are warships. Some of our fellow nations have created warships as part of their amphibious capability. Others are utilizing converted commercial vessels. And many of the nations are somewhere in between, or a mixture or pieces and parts, or renewing old amphibious capability and rejuvenating capability that perhaps has gone dormant over the years. The bottom line is that they are all contributing to a greater amphibious capability. As an example, the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force Amphibious Raid Deployment Brigade, Amphibious Rapid Deployment Brigade, excuse me, is a great example. They will reach their initial operating capability in 2018 with a with a full operational capability in 2023. And in 2023, they will have 3,400 trained soldiers equipped with AAVs, supported by V-22s, embarked on what were mine warfare platforms, helicopter destroyers in the Japanese parlance, to execute that mission. The Japanese have in their budget the construction of an amphibious ship with a well deck that shows Once again, a growth, but they're taking existing platforms and putting them together. Japanese soldiers are already attending the amphibious assault training in the United States, amphibious assault vehicle training in the United States. We're preparing to receive the first Japanese pilots in V-22 training here in the United States. This all requires Japan to define and train in both joint and a combined environment. It is driving a fundamental change in the Japan Self-Defense Force, not only in their organization, in their training, and how they will command and control these forces that will require the integration of joint capability. The Singaporean Force. As mentioned earlier, they purchased a mini-aircraft carrier. The vessel was envisioned to be larger than the Endurance-class ships, but with greater helicopter capacity. The Singaporean announcement at the time, at least, seemed closely linked to their offer to host a regional humanitarian assistance and disaster relief coordination center. And this was a couple of months before their announcement of their HADR center as a remedy to perceived shortfalls from the 2013 Typhoon Haiyan. Since then, that force looks like it may be used for other things than just humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. New Zealand currently has an amphibious capability but is primarily commercial vessel-based. But they are working in close coordination with their Australian partners to embark New Zealand soldiers aboard Australian amphibious ships, and have done so in many exercises, uh, to include the Talisman Sabre series of exercises in our planning to do so in upcoming operations in the rim of the Pacific uh, exercises, which will take place at the end of July. Australian amphibious capabilities already supported humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. HMAS Canberra responded to the tropical cyclone Winston. But in addition to that HADR capability, the Australians are building the uh, training, the procurement, and the interoperability with other nation states to have a capability to do assaults, raids, demonstrations, and amphibious withdrawals in a three-ship amphibious ready group commanded by an amphibious task force, or an amphibious task group. This fully developed three amphibious ship capability will be tested in an Australian Defense Force exercise called C-Series 2017. It will be conducted next April, May. It will be a, a mid-intensity combat operation, and if it's successful, that exercise will declare final operational capability for Australian amphibious capability across their range of military operations as I discussed above. I mentioned Malaysia has developed amphibious capability, described by some as a collective effort to enhance HADR in Southeast Asia. But other indicators should not be overlooked. Not only in Malaysia, but in other countries, the development of amphibious capability is actually far more reaching than the mere acquisition of amphibious ships, be they alternative platforms, commercial converted commercial vessels, or actual warships. It involves a modernization and mechanization of existing amphibious ground forces, as well as doctrinal shifts, like the ones I mentioned in the Japan Self-Defense Force. Efforts are underway to improve amphibious defenses. During a recent working visit to Hawaii in January of this year, Malaysia sought the Pacific commander's support, and specifically, the commander of Marine Forces Pacific support in developing a dedicated amphibious ground force based on the United States Marine Corps model. More of the naval infantry than an amphibious capability, but nonetheless a capability that can utilize amphibious platforms for the execution of counterterrorism operations in Malaysia. So what does all this mean for the United States? Implications for the US fleet. I would say this up front, let there be no doubt That amphibious operations are joint and combined operations at the most complex and the most difficult level this is not a navy marine corps exclusivity this is a joint force capability possessed by the united states that i would offer at this time and at least today is second to none and the reason for that is we have the ability to integrate that capability across the joint force across all five domains, land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace. I said at least today because several of our allies in the Asia-Pacific region have at least the intent, the plan, to grow to this level of capability and complexity. The complexity of joint and combined operations demands training, it demands experimentation, it demands interoperability, and most importantly, it demands a long-term commitment in order to achieve success in the crisis. (coughs) Training and long-term commitment means resources. For the U.S. it means all forms of training, both unilateral and bilateral and multilateral. It means live, virtual, constructive, you could say synthetic, as well as it means using up the coin of the realm. And the coin of the realm for the U.S. Navy are dollars to to support ship steaming days. Every day that a ship is steaming in support of an exercise is a day that it's not steaming in support of some other vital requirement for the United States Navy. So as I said earlier, you don't do more with less, you do different with less. Without more money, different means either more ships, but perhaps not more in aggregate. And I think we've seen that. Maybe it's more in apportionment. If you look at the recent discussions With the United States Navy and the PAC fleet commander, you would say to yourself, is this possible? And I would say, yes, different with less is possible. We see different with less in other nations' development of their capabilities. They're developing more capacity within their existing capability. And doing that by not just amphibious platforms, but all the associated things that leverage those platforms to employ them across the range of military operations. They're also getting different with less by partnering, by partnering with the United States, by partnering with their fellow nations in the region, by partnering with other partners in the region that before the recent past would never almost have been thinkable. And yet many of those exercises are taking place, starting at the tabletop, but then working to actual live exercises to execute and to find out the challenges of things like interoperability. We see that the US Navy's commitment of both Third Fleet and Seventh Fleet, both our, our forces on the west coast of the United States and our forward deployed forces in the Pacific. We're seeing an increase of those deployed forces to the Pacific. That's that apportionment piece that I was talking about. It's not more ships in total, it's just more ships in the Asia Pacific. We see that in the US Navy's commitment to an additional arg presence in the Pacific, in beginning as early as 2019, where there will be additional patrols. So not only will you have the four deployed naval force, the four ships that are home ported in Japan, but you will also have additional amphibious capability on multiple 90-day patrols in and around the Asia Pacific so with this groundswell of building capability what is the major limiting factor to continued success of amphibious pacific development i would offer that it is a multifaceted problem first and foremost command and control interoperability will be vital to the increasingly complex bilateral and multilateral training only with the proper training will we be able to leverage the full capability that's being brought by the increase of amphibious development in the pacific second and perhaps tied for first, is ship-to-shore connectors. Ship-to-shore connectors remain the limiting factor in being able to fully leverage the capabilities of both U.S. and international amphibious capabilities. It's not enough just to get to the place, to get to the crisis. We must get there, we must deliver the capability ashore, we must be able to do it in any weather and in any sea state. And those are significant challenges. Funding. Funding both to train and interoperate will be squeezed. It will be squeezed by each country and by each country's needs. Their needs to conduct unilateral training, their needs to conduct bilateral and multilateral training, and then their continuing need for modernization, for upkeep, to make sure that these platforms survive well into the future. In the end, and Dr. Hicks mentioned that I served three years as the Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources. There is a 12-step program to get over that, and I'm almost (laughs) through it now. In the end, it's not just about money. It's all about the money. Money and intent. And I would offer perhaps the most precious resource is intent. The intent to sustain this incredible momentum that we see. The intent to develop this amphibious capability in the Asia-Pacific, a capability that can respond to crises across the range of military operations and be truly synergistic in effect at every point on the spectrum of conflict. The challenge is to maintain the momentum. Only time will tell how successful we, the United States, our allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific, will be at long-term sustainment of amphibious capability in the Asia-Pacific. Only time will tell if we in fact land together, or if we sail apart. Worse yet, if we run aground with a lack of commitment or intent. The geography, the threat, and the security situation in the Asia Pacific demand otherwise. Thank you for your attention this morning, and I will now open it up for questions.
0: Going to drive Travis crazy with my necklace here. Here we go. I should stop that. Sorry about that. Um, well, let's let's um, let's begin where you work now. Based on the what you said there at the end, of course, there's this question always about the rebalance to the Pacific and how well we can resource it given the strain of operations elsewhere in the world, among other things. You know, the how confident do you feel right now about that ability to continue apportioning, as you point out, uh, a greater percent of the Marine Corps, into the, which it traditionally has anyway, but to continue and sustain that given um, the need for crisis response elsewhere in the world?
1: Uh, I'm actually very confident uh, that we'll be able to do that. I think we're leveraging allied capability uh, at an increasing level. We certainly haven't maximized our ability to do that. Mm-hmm. But our ability to leverage our allied capability to respond to crises uh, is is exceptional. In in Europe, as an example, uh, we've placed uh, Marine Corps capability aboard uh, allied and partner nation shipping to execute amphibious operations. And similarly, we brought their capability aboard our ships to do that. So the doing different with less uh, is the way I see that we can sustain that. Rebalance to the Pacific. Uh, that does not diminish the requirement for U.S. only capability in places around the world, and certainly that capability is stretched uh, right now, uh, just given the, the challenges of where we are with uh, our amphibious fleet, but also with the entire fleet and fleet readiness. But Admiral Davidson at Fleet Forces Command and and the, and the other uh, fleet commanders are doing an exceptional job, in my mind, of uh, fighting a fight with limited resources uh, to make things work. It doesn't mean that we're not in a very precarious position, because I would tell you we are. Um, We are meeting many requirements just in time, Mm. and and so when one of those doesn't happen, uh, the training of our amphibious assault vehicle crews, what we call ship services to get our Marines aboard amphibious ships, both to do deck landing qualifications with our rotary wing as well as our uh, short takeoff vertical landing aircraft, uh, and then to do uh, onload and offload of our uh, amphibious uh, capabilities on and off ship. Those things are very challenging. Um, we, are, we are meeting readiness issues there, but I would offer it's sustainable. Um, obviously, the, the long pole in the tent, uh, as I mentioned, is, is, is funding. Right. If, for whatever reason, uh, the Congress does not come to an agreement and we, We're forced into sequestration Uh, for the Marine Corps and for the Navy. That would result in about a 34 percent reduction in operations and maintenance money. That's one-third less ability to sail, to train, and then when we can't train and interoperate with our Asian partners, um, I think it becomes a challenge for them to continue to build that capability.
0: Have you seen other um, capable allies in the Pacific stepping forward, in particular in the amphib arena, to themselves be a train-the-trainer um, partner?
1: Certainly my closest uh, relationship, as I mentioned, was with the, with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And, and um, we were conducting, on average, uh, 14 low level meetings with about three to four higher level meaning meaning general officer, flag officer conferences annually with them. Um, and they are now beginning to filter that training back through uh, their western army has been given the responsibility for the development of amphibious capability. And they have taken that on with a great vigor and they are doing the exercises, the training, they are partnering Um, In fact, both uh, General Toolin, the commander of Marine Forces Pacific, and Admiral Swift, the Pacific Fleet Commander, uh, just sat down with the Japanese and they have agreed to an executive steering committee with an 06 level oversight that will continue to drive that train-the-trainer opportunities well down into into the Western Army and then into that uh, rapid uh, deployment brigade. So they have taken that on Mm -hmm. wholeheartedly. Uh, they are looking at how they have to change their, and it's everything from how their joint staff is organized and how they command and control to how they control all elements of the battle space to how they will employ these rapid deployment forces. I would say uh, we've made great strides in Korea similarly. Uh, During my tenure in General Nicholson now, the commander of 3MF has continued that uh, uh, even at a greater pace. Uh, The integration of amphibious operations, uh, sort of the premier amphibious operation with the Koreans is an exercise called Songyang. Um, in uh, 2014, uh, we brought together 21, amphib- uh, 21 ships uh, to support an amphibious landing, U.S. and Korean, and embarked not only U.S. And, and Republic of Korea Marines, but also Australians and New Zealanders to execute amphibious operations on the Korean Peninsula. The Koreans are taking stock of what they need to do to get to the next level. The Korean Marine Corps is, in fact, purchasing helicopters so that they can become self-sustaining from amphibious platforms. And likewise, as you heard me mention in fairly good detail, the Australians have mm-hmm. taken this on with great with great, uh, great interest. Uh, right before I left, uh, the Pacific uh, visited the Talisman Sabre exercise. And in that exercise, not only US, Australian, New Zealanders, but also uh, uh, Japanese participated. And in this upcoming uh, exercise, we have uh, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, U.S., and uh, Tongans mm-hmm. embarked, on, uh, uh, embarked on Australian shipping. Uh, that's, the, in my mind, the right. proof of the pudding. We, it's beyond PowerPoint. It's beyond tabletop discussion. Right. It's putting people on the ships and executing those, mm-hmm. those very challenging amphibious operations.
0: And I think you pointed to it already in your remarks, but just to, to be clear, then what do you think – those allies and partners in your experience out there, what are they most looking toward the United States to provide, maybe uniquely or especially to provide in this space?
1: Uh, Well, I think uh, depending on the operation, Mm -hmm. um, it it sort of varies. It's our ability to command and control first and foremost, to do interoperability. Uh, I had a very good discussion with the general from the Luftwaffe when I was in Europe uh, about the complexities of controlling airspace in an amphibious operation. Um, NATO had gone away from the traditional, you know, pre-1989 U.S. versus the Soviet Union, where we had well-integrated discussions about the airspace of Europe was the airspace of Europe. Well, the airspace in Europe today is controlled by nations. Hmm. And so integrating capability across those is very difficult. And as he and I were discussing, in an amphibious operation, a requirement for the landing force to control airspace up to a fairly significant altitudes is different than most air forces would think would be necessary. So he's asked for us to come and train uh, the NATO forces in, in how we integrate aviation fires. I would offer we still have probably the best, we the U.S., the best capability to integrate all facets, uh, land, sea, Mm airspace, cyberspace. Um, And so that's where they rely on us, where we're strong or where they're weak. Mm -hmm. Our ability to do uh, at-sea replenishment, our ability to do refueling, our ability to do other things. That being said, each of those nations also brings very capable niche capabilities, countermine being one I think that's, that's uh, exceptional. During a recent exercise in the Baltics and Baltops this year, uh, the countermine force not only found all the mines that they were supposed to that were laid by the op for, but they also found existing World War II mines that had never been. Uh, and then they found some dud ordnance that had actually buried itself in the seabed that's a significant capability if you follow countermine operations out to find something that's buried in the mud uh, in in the in the baltics which is a tremendously complex due to gradient and salinity that's a real capability and so while we do bring capability their ability to find it our ability to work through it and and our ability to breach if you will all comes together to bring i think uh, a great capability
0: one of the debates that has been active for many years is the size of the U.S. amphibious force. And, and of course, the composition is a piece of that that more recently has been a maybe fully more fully fleshed conversation. But there has been varying times of talking about the peacetime presence driving it, a forcible entry or a higher end amphibious capability requirement driving it. How do you, when you are out and about in, in, in environments like this, describe the... Amphibious capability requirements the United States has today.
1: Well, I think if, if, if you if you believed the combatant commanders, we are severely under resourced. Uh, Chief of Naval Operations about two years ago said to meet the amphibious capabilities, we need approximately fifty amphibious ships. Um, right now, I would tell you that the commander of uh, UCOMSAT here wishes he had a, an amphibious ready group continuous presence in the Med. Both off of North Africa uh, in the Mediterranean, but also to move up and do exercises along the northern flank of NATO, we don't have that capability. Uh, we have a continuing and required presence in CENTCOM, um, and even that that presence gets uh, gets um, somewhat diluted when we do disaggregated operations. And uh, and so the full thirteen mission sets assigned to a RDMU team are not capable when they're in the fully disaggregated. Uh, 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 operations. Um, the Forward Deployed Naval Force uh, due to ship maintenance requirements um, uh, does not have a 1.0 presence, meaning they can't get all of an ARG underway every day in the year. That's not because the Navy doesn't want to. It's, a, it's, it's simply a, it's a physics problem, if you will. It's the, their requirement to be able to execute uh, training. So, so, when I'm out and about, I, I discuss it both in the day-to-day, mm-hmm. which, which drives that 50-ship number, and the but also you can look at, uh, at the operational plan requirements, and, uh, and there have been significant uh, demands uh, placed there. Um, in, in many of our operational plans, uh, we, we're challenged to meet the combined forcible entry operations. In many areas of the world, the operational mobility for the, uh, for the Joint Force Commander is provided by that, that, that Navy-Marine Corps team. And by that, I mean both U.S. and Allied, um, because uh, it provides them to operate at and from the sea and to use the sea as maneuver space and to be able to be present um, at a point of their choosing, not at a point determined or defended by the enemy. Um, and and whether that enemy happens to be weather, uh, in the form of a of a typhoon, um, and we saw that in 2013 in, in the in the devastating typhoon Haiyan in the, in the Philippines, um, we were able to access areas because of amphibious ship capability and because of our navy, uh, you know, carrier battle group capability to a, to a to a similar degree, uh, that we would never have been able to. To gain access with, had we not had amphibious capability to to operate at and from the sea.
0: You you talked I think very persuasively about thinking differently, um, you know, doing things differently. Can you give it just a couple examples, either from your three mf experience or today, um, of you know uh, exercises, experiments, what have you, where where you sure. you feel like you you're you're on to some good ideas of how to do
1: that. Um, one is the use of alternative platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, General Tulin has been a, a huge proponent, as has uh, uh, myself. Uh, I would offer anybody who's in the business of doing amphibious operations. Um, when you don't have enough of something, you've got to find something that, that can fill the gap in a, in a means that that does support what you're trying to accomplish. So as an example, in that uh, Song Yong exercise of 2014, and as well in the Song Yong exercise of 2016. We used uh, an element of the Maritime Prepositioning Ship Force, uh, T-A-K-E, to embark our our, uh, logistics capability. Uh, Mounted command and control capability aboard that ship, uh, used the flight deck, and actually used that as a command and control hub for uh, resupply. That ship doesn't necessarily have to sort of get into harm's way, if you will. Um, we can put it in a position uh, inside the integrated naval capability. And so the fact that it's not a warship, um, you can still leverage it to do the things you do. But you have to understand that it's not a warship. Right. Um, the use of a joint high-speed vessel. Uh, joint high-speed vessel is a tremendous capability, but it's limited by sea state. It's limited by uh, weather. Um, in fact, uh, it's limited by things like if it were to respond to a HADR event, uh, sunken objects that result from major typhoons uh, wreak havoc on yeah. thin aluminum hulls, um, And the captains don't like that. And uh, obviously if there are Marines embarked, they don't like it either. Uh, so uh, it's using the right platform in the right place at the right time and leveraging those platforms. To do that, it's also to leverage U.S. capability to enhance uh, host nation capability. I mentioned mm-hmm. the Koreans have uh, the ability to uh, to nationalize uh, large ferry systems, and so experimentation. I mentioned experimentation using our mobile landing platforms to marry up those ferries mm-hmm. at sea to discharge capability, and from there then to discharge that capability ashore um, to marry up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, LMSR, Army LMSR capability with uh, our at-sea platforms. Although that's in the very infancy, but that's Mm -hmm. something uh, experimentation piece to look at. So uh, it's looking at how we can leverage all those capabilities, keeping in mind that not, as I said, not every not every platform is amphibious warship. And as long as we understand that, and we do understand that the reason we're doing this is because we do have a significant shortfall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the amphibious ship has been referred to as the uh, Swiss Army knife of, of, of the fleet. And, and the reason is it, it can do just about everything in the sense that uh, it, it's a warship, but it can fight at the low end and you can reconfigure those ships very quickly. In 2013, uh, we took two ships out of 31st Mew, uh, offloaded the 31st <laughs> Mew sort of Deployment package reloaded with the HADR packages. Did all that within 24 hours, and then sailed off to the Philippines. That's an amazing capability to bring water, to bring you know debris removal, to bring uh, vehicles to move food. As it turned out, uh, the most valuable platform we have were our MV22s uh, paired with our KC130s uh, in the in the vicinity of Tacloban. We never built up a single drop of fuel on the ground at the airfield. We used aerial refuelers or we refueled off the of Navy carriers. Uh, and we kept those V-22s delivering emergency supplies. It actually worked to our detriment in the press because um, uh, the press thought we weren't doing anything because they never saw any buildup of supplies on the, on, on the location. Yeah. So there was this complaint that the U.S. wasn't doing anything. We had to sort of bring them out to, to let them get a... a, a sense of what we were doing. So, um, it's that ability to use things differently, to leverage different platforms, Mm -hmm. to leverage different countries platforms, and to do the experimentation, because it is experimentation. When we designed the MLP, we did not plan on a commercial ferry pulling up next to it. Uh, Some people in the audience know the history of that very well. And doing skin-to-skin operations at sea and sea state is a very, very dangerous uh, adventure. Um, so, all those things considered, that's why I said the experimentation piece, the interoperability piece, all those things are how you do different with less.
0: Great. Okay, we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, there we have mics coming around. When I call on you, please give your name and your affiliation, and we'll start right here.
1: Thank you. Jeff Shogel with Marine Corps Times. General, you mentioned that there is going to be another ARGMU in the Asia-Pacific around 2019. Can you talk about what, that, what capabilities that gives uh, Marines in the Asia-Pacific? And uh, were you talking fiscal 19 or calendar year 2019? Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's uh, right now scheduled for uh, fiscal year 2019. Um, what that will bring is a regular arg capability. Three ships uh, in the traditional arg configuration. Uh, the Marines that uh, are uh, are aboard, whether those Marines uh, come from uh, the continental United States, uh, whether they come from Hawaii, whether they come from the unit deployment program Marines in Japan, all those details are being worked out. And the idea is to create additional presence, um, particularly in, uh, in, in, in southern Asia. As you know, we have a marine rotational force in Darwin six months out of the year, but during the wet season, um, that force uh, redeploys back to the continental United States. Uh, They're replaced. Their unit deployment uh, infantry battalion and associated assets goes to to Okinawa and then on to other locations in in the Asia Pacific. But um, this is an opportunity to create a presence uh, so that the forward deployed naval force uh, would have sort of the northern... Uh, Eastern region and then that second uh, through two 90-day patrols would be worked out. The actual basing of that and all that, uh, all those uh, significant details obviously are being worked out and that's why it's a 2019 problem because it's, uh, uh, as you can imagine, a very complex undertaking.
0: Okay. Great. Sidney.
1: Thank you. Uh, General, Sidney Friedberg, Breaking Defense. Uh, You mentioned a very wide range of allies and partners from countries that are probably have better electronics than we do, like Japan, uh, to countries that are very much developing nations uh, like Malaysia. I'm curious, it's hard enough just getting the Marine Corps and the Navy to link up in terms of interoperability uh, or with our allies in NATO who are all more or less on a level what is the range of challenges, capabilities, especially interoperability, command and control, both technologically and just in terms of you know staff experience, uh, organizational structures being adequate, and how does that you know limit what different potential partners can do and not do as part of this wider uh, partnership? Um, Small question. Well, yeah, let, let me sort of parse it into some pieces here. Uh, first of all. Uh, Command and control is not necessarily about being technologically more advanced or less advanced. It's about having things that can can communicate with each other. Um, And then you have to sort of determine on what level you want to communicate. Um, And you do that through two things that I mentioned, experimentation and exercises. Um, And so by operating together, we determine where those interoperability shortfalls occur and then we uh, together, allies, partners uh, in the United States, uh, seek whatever the solutions to those are. Um, as an example with the Koreans, the, the exercise that I mentioned, uh, fully integrated uh, combined Marine Expeditionary Brigade staffs on board amphibious ships. Um, Koreans, Korean Marines, U.S. Marines, Korean sailors, U.S. sailors, sitting side by side on the amphibious ships, doing all of the planning, doing all of the execution, doing everything as you go ship to shore. Similarly, when we execute the talisman saber exercise, those are combined operations, meaning the staffs are integrated, uh, meaning that it's not simply liaison officer type of integration, but it is rather members of the staffs being integrated. So once you can get the people to talk, the systems sort of can follow behind. And we have technologies that will allow now that that will allow uh, various sorts of uh, equipment to talk to each other. We just have to figure out how we need to make that happen, what the scale is, uh, and and where it's important that we share that information. So you find that out in experimentation and in training, uh, and then you employ it, and then you come back and test it, uh, and then continue that training. And that's why I said intent and commitment become the real key because. um, you know, you mentioned that we have NATO standards, uh, and uh, and we had NATO standards. Uh, we have an exercise and trained to the NATO standards, and that's through these most recent operations. We're we're coming back to a level of uh, of capability that, that we had lost uh, over time. Uh, so um, it's about sustainment and sustainment of that that uh, bilateral and multilateral training. That is the key. Great. Okay. Right over here. Thanks, General. Kevin Winsing, uh, Navy League. Uh, could you explain how the uh, joint strike fighter and more use of V-22 will enhance uh, amphibious capability, make it more of a strike capability, and also how that may uh, the deployment of those kind of systems to our allies might enhance their strike capability as well? Sure. Um, I, I mean, uh, I think people have seen the... the utility of the V-22. I I mentioned the example in the Philippines, but what I didn't say was those V-22s were based at the old Clark Air Base in Manila uh, responding to the typhoon disaster in the central Visayas. So if you know anything about the the geography of the of the Philippines, uh, a little over 230 miles away um, and yet maintained a consistent presence because they could aerially refuel by KC-130. Um, a more recent example is uh, disaster relief and the earthquakes in Nepal self-deploying uh, MV-22s to uh, Nepal from Okinawa, actually from the Philippines uh, where they've been on an exercise. Um, uh, just happened to be on the ground the day that the four ship of the V-22s came screaming over Kathmandu Airport and did their transition and landed and uh, uh, the question from uh, question from one of the ambassadors was, where did they come from? And when I said, Okinawa, he asked me, no, really, where did they come from? (laughs) And I said, Okinawa. Um, (laughs) So, uh, that changes the size of the battlefield. That changes your depth and reach, this amphibious capability. So, uh, you know, there's a a large concern about anti-access and area denial uh, in a high-end fight. Um, But also, if you could, uh, you know, going back to the example of thin-skinned ships responding to HADR. If you can put a thin-skinned ship far enough away from the disaster but still be able to, then that ship has an ability to support operations. So it's the ability of range. Uh, we're doing a lot of things with digital interoperability on our MV-22s now so that the Marines that are embarked in the back of those V-22s, whether they're doing HADR or whether they're doing uh, combat operations, can get up-to-the-minute uh, visual implications of where they 're going on the battlefields, so or whether that 's going into an embassy somewhere in northern Africa, whether that 's uh, you know uh, dealing with a, a typhoon relief, uh, whether that 's rescuing uh, somebody anywhere in the world, tremendous capability the f35 uh, similarly is a game changer uh, we 'll deploy the uh, the first, uh, first f35 s uh, into Japan. Um, uh, that will be the first uh, squadron that will actually deploy. And then uh, when we deploy F-35 off of uh, large deck amphibious ships, that will give a fifth generation capability. F-35 is, is, uh, is a lot more than uh, than a very capable F-18, about all I can say in this environment, but it, it brings things to the battlefield that uh, really are exceptional. The very interesting piece is our allies have invested in those. And so that solves that interoperability problem. The fact that the Japanese will be flying V-22s will allow us to talk and share data directly. The fact that the Japanese are buying F-35s, that we're buying F-35s, that many of our allies are buying F-35s will allow us to communicate directly and to transmit information through those aviation platforms back so that we can execute operations. So um, when you look at the leap ahead technology that the F-35 is gonna bring, um, it will fundamentally change the battlefield. In terms of defeating anti-access and area denial, the challenge uh, for the enemy, if you will, who's trying to deny you access, uh, is he's gotta target you. And if you can move where you're operating from significantly um, it, it truly complicates its targeting problem. And the F-35, particularly Stovall, the, the F-35B will allow us to operate from very austere environments for extended periods of time. And you combine that with KC-130s and the other capabilities to work. It, it provides a significant capability. And then if you integrate the expeditionary aviation command and control that we have, uh, our ability to... Uh, to uh, to place uh, long-range indirect fire assets on very remote locations. Um, that also, uh, with the integration of both the V-22 and uh, and the F-35. We've experimented with that. We did a long-range raid from uh, Okinawa to uh, Guam in, in, uh, in uh, V-22s. Uh, we did it to simulate taking an obscure island. We brought in uh, long-range uh, uh, high-Mars rockets uh, We further brought in uh, Expeditionary Aviation Command and Control capability and in conjunction with our naval partners who through uh, weather and other issues could not get E2s and other things up to control the aviation fight, the ground-based Expeditionary Aviation Control provided a picture of the at-sea fight and the air fight to the naval commander, the Joint Force Maritime Component Commander, such that he could fight that fight and have all-weather indirect fire capability to address anti-access and area denial threats. So that was exercised uh, uh, as long ago as uh, 2014 will be exercised again. This year uh, was exercised in uh, ex- in Talisman Sabre. In Talisman Sabre we actually physically deployed an expeditionary radar from Alaska where it was on doing a training exercise into the deep training area in Australia and within two days had it up and operational and supporting, extending the range, if you will, the ability to see inland for the Naval Expeditionary Force that could then move outside threat rings and operate. So all those things contribute to truly, truly changing the way we look at how we employ amphibious forces. And you can do that across the spectrum.
0: Right, We have reached the end of your available time. But good news, we have a multi-target environment coming up for you with our panel. But uh, please join me in thanking General Whistler for coming up to Washington, which is always treacherous, and sharing his uh, information.